The, uh, for many years now, we've observed this last Sunday in October as Reformation Sunday. We usually devote the sermon portion of the worship to some aspect of Christian history, and usually, not all the time, but usually focusing on the Protestant Reformation, the, you know, the great departure uh, from the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century. You know, it was a big deal. As far as I know, for, this is a, the way it was, a really momentous thing. Uh, as far as I know, there are only two churches in Oak Ridge and lots of churches, dozens of churches in this, in this town. But there are only two, that, as far as I know, only two that don't trace their lineage back to the Protestant Reformation. One, of course, is a Catholic church uh, here in town, and the other is an Eastern Orthodox church. And the Eastern, Eastern Orthodox, they split off uh, from the Catholics a few centuries before the Protestant Reformation. But every one of the others, probably over 40, trace their lineage back to the Protestant Reformation. Now, that's not to say that a good many of those denominational churches usually, it's not to say that they haven't departed from the faith of the Reformers. Uh, too many of them have. They, a long time ago, they left the, you know, the faith of the Reformation, and they might be embarrassed by their theological ancestors now. But, you know, so, so be it. What do you, you can't change the family tree, right? It's, it's set, and, and they do. They trace it back to the uh, Reformation. Personally, I, I, just, I love Reformation Sunday because I think Christian history is important, and I'm happy to have it as an excuse to teach about it. You know, just, just one Sunday a year. Because in important ways, our, uh, our theological and our religious ancestors have, have shaped us in ways that most Christians can scarcely imagine. Uh, and knowing something about them, knowing something about their lives and their struggles and the controversies they faced and the, and the contributions that they made to the church, knowing something about it can add to the depth of our own faith, uh, give us context and, uh, and really even inspiration. That's a big part of it, inspiration for how we live as Christians today. And just to, just to kind of, before we jump into it, just to give you an idea of how Christian tradition is important, consider why it is that we gather together to worship the Lord on Sundays and even Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings. You know, there's no instruction in the New Testament to do that. There's not, there's not anywhere in the New Testament that says, make sure you get together on Sunday mornings. But we do it. And why do we do it? We meet on Sunday mornings because the church has been meeting on Sunday mornings since the very beginning. And this is a case where, because we've always done it that way, is a perfectly good reason to keep on doing it that way. Most of the time it's like, you know, that's a silly thing because we've always done it that way. This is a it's perfectly good reason to keep doing it because why did the church start, why did it start doing that? And it started meeting on Sundays because it was on a Sunday morning that our Lord rose from the dead. So our meeting on Sunday mornings affirms a connection with the church across the ages. You know, it's like we're one with them all across the ages, and it gives testimony to the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, you know, I wonder, you know, most, a lot of people think, well, why we just go on Sundays? Because that's when it is. But why is it on Sundays? It just showing up here. 
showing up here on a Sunday morning as opposed to some other day of the week is a visual, unspoken declaration that Jesus is risen from the dead. And all the more so if you realize that's why you're here. That's why you're here on a Sunday, because Jesus is risen from the dead. But that's history. It's not Bible. It's history. And so in that way and many, many others, the history of the church is more important than most Christians realize. And so, once again, Reformation Sunday offers a reason to, to uh, give our attention and learn what we can from the great cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews says, to the, the great cloud of witnesses for us who's, who have lived between the 1st and 21st centuries. Um, beginning in 1999, we had Reformation Sunday before that, but beginning in 1999, we had speakers from that great cloud of witnesses from 1st and 21st centuries uh, right, right here in the pulpit, direct from heaven. It began with Martin Luther's right-hand man and friend, Philip Melanchthon. There's Philip. Speakers after... Speakers after Melanchthon have included Aurelius Augustine. There's Augustine. His wonderful salvation story. Terrific salvation story. And, and, and uh, Augustine there, he developed formulations of Christian faith that are still being used today. You know, the, the things you say about doctrine, things that appear in your doctrinal statements came from, from him. Fourth century. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? You know, I hope some of the things that I've said, you know, some of the distinctive things, the things, oh, he always said that. I hope it lasts, you know, like through your lifetimes, maybe you would remember from a thousand, more than a thousand years, people are still saying what he said. Anyway, we've had lesser historical figures like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, World War II era German pastor, theologian, co-conspirator in a failed attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler. In the, we had the 16th century peasant preacher Menno Simons. He's the Menno Simons peasant preacher. He's the reason why Mennonites are Mennonites. He's the reason, Simon Menno. And we've had a generous sampling of heavenly Johns. We had John Newton, 18th century former slave trader, become Christian, abolitionist, author of Amazing Grace that we sang today. Originally titled, by the way, Faith's review and expectation. Marketing wasn't his thing. <laughs> but he wrote Amazing Grace. We had John Bunyan, 17th century preacher, author of the Christian classic Pilgrim's Progress, which was originally titled Pilgrim's Progress, a longer title, but it's still Pilgrim's Progress. We had John Calvin, 16th century French reformer, call him the theologian of the Reformation. He published his seminal, still used, still read, still cited, Institutes of the Christian Religion. I've got it in two volumes, of the, two books about that thick. He wrote that, published it when he was 27 years old. 27 years old. And we've had John Wesley, 18th century founder of Methodism. And there have been others, and there, and there could still be others, well-deserving of our attention, able to teach us how to live as Christians in our own generation, but today, of course, absolutely must belong to Martin Luther. If 
500 years, as I said at the beginning, 500 years ago this coming Tuesday, October 31st, 1517, the priest Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, Germany. 95 points of dispute with Roman Catholic doctrine and practice, an event that is generally taken as the birthday of the Protestant Reformation. Now, there was a context, and we can see the seeds of the Reformation being planted generations, decades before in the lives and and ministries of people like John Wycliffe, philosopher, theologian, who translated the scriptures into English in 1382. You know, the 95 Theses, 1517, 1382. He translated the Bible into English, which at the time was a highly controversial thing. Highly controversial. He's, a, you know, to me, he looks like he's waiting on the on-deck circle. You know, he's studying the picture. Doesn't look at that. He's waiting in the on-deck circle. They, and before, the, before Luther, Wycliffe, also Jan Hus, or Hus, Czechoslovakian priest, burned at the stake as a heretic in 1415, basically for holding what would be known as Protestant doctrines uh, like you and I believe. He was burned at the stake for believing things that you and I believe today. He looks like Mark Pethel to me. But there's a tradition, the authenticity of which has been called into question, which says that Jan Hus was... Uh, told his executioner when he's there he's you know with the uh, uh, the sticks piled around him tied to the stake being burned there's a there's a tradition that he told his executioner you are now going to burn a goose because hus or hus in the bohemian language means goose his name is you are now going to burn a goose but in a century you will have a swan which you can neither roast nor boil. And if he said that, some people take it as a prophecy of Martin Luther who nailed that 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg 102 years after he was, after he was burned at the stake. Well, 68 years after Huss was burned at the stake, Martin Luther was born in Eisleben, Germany. That's his... That's his birthplace. Nine years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue, you know, 1492, nine years before that, Luther was born. He was born into a peasant but upwardly mobile coal mining family. Nice looking couple, handsome looking couple. One of them may be having a bad hair day, I don't know. He was named Martin after St. Martin, whose feast was celebrated on November 11th the day of his baptism, and the day after his birth. So Luther was baptized, infant baptism, at one day old. Not taking any chances. One day old. Martin's father, Hans, was of a mind to educate his son for the law. Even back then, having a lawyer in the family was a good thing. Handy. And, and both of young Martin's parents had hoped that he would provide for them in their old age through the practice of law as well not not just provide for them but kind of push them up into the uh, upper echelons of german society Uh, so martin he spent nine years at latin school then he went to another school he went to another school after that 
finally to the university to study law, September 1502, at almost 19 years of age, he passed the bachelor's exam. Two years later, he passed his master's exams, and the whole family was beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, maybe the light at the end of the coal shaft, <laughs> you know, like he's about to, he's about to be able to make some real money for us, and and, uh, you know, we'll be able to, I'll be able to quit my job and, we, you know, this, we're going to be all right. But young Martin was, uh, well, what they say today, but not then, going through some stuff. <laughs> he was going through some things. And he was overwhelmed uh, by an unrelenting sense of guilt and terror in the face of the moral and spiritual demands of an utterly holy God. And when he was 21 years old, he found himself caught on horseback in a terrific thunderstorm. And when lightning struck nearby, it spooked his horse and his, it threw him to the ground and his horse ran off. And he just knew, he knew it was God after him throwing those lightning bolts right at him because he was so wicked and God was so holy. And he called out and this... He calls out. He says, help me, St. Anne. I will become a monk. <laughs> help me, St. Anne. I'll become a monk. And so, you know, he couldn't call out to God. God was the one who's after him. God was trying to get him in his mind. But St. Anne, St. Anne, by Catholic tradition, the mother of Mary, it's a Jesus' grandma. That image right there, that image right there, that's Mary in, in, in her mother's arms. So Jesus, Grandma, surely she's got some pull in heaven. You know, she could work things out for him. She's the patron saint. Listen to this. She's the patron saint of carpenters, child care providers, stablemen, grandparents, lace makers, lost articles, Old clothes dealers, pregnant ladies, poor people, seamstresses, sterility, teachers, equestrians, and miners. Not, not young people, miners, like coal miners. So, you know, you got to know which saint fits your situation. They can help you out whatever scrape you're in. And, and Luther's come from a mining family, so they may have prayed to St. Anne in the household. You know, he's... The dad's a coal miner, and St. Anne, the patron saint of miners, so they may have had prayed to her. They may have had an image of her or some sort of representation of her in the house, perhaps. And, and uh, you know, so, and, and she's a she's a equestrian. She's, a, you know, a, a patron saint of equestrians, too. So, you know, he's on horseback, so maybe that. But anyway, it fit. It fit. So he calls out to St. Anne. And Luther's helped, apparently, because the lightning didn't kill him. So, you know, thank you, St. Anne, and I'd better make good on that vow. I said I'd become a monk. But, but think about this. What a way to live. What a way to live. Your life just governed by inner conflicts, you know, emotional things, uh, guilt, outer circumstances major life decisions made on the basis of personal emotional turmoil and and really groundless superstitions like he tells me i'm going to become a monk he's you know i'm going to do i'm going to do the thing i really want to do 
because that's probably what God wants me to do. He probably wants me to do the thing I most don't want to do. He, he just loves making people do what they don't want to do. And those lightning bolts, they're probably for me. <laughs> He's probably aiming for me. And then placing his hope, placing hope and in faith and things that cannot save, cannot deliver, anything but only more despair. Here's what Martin Luther, as religious as he was and his family was, here's what they didn't know at the time. That's a Latin Vulgate, you see. That's a Bible in Latin. He didn't, Martin didn't know, I mean really know, that God is good, he's really good, and that he really loved him. He, he didn't know, he didn't really know that Christ is the only intermediary between God and man that we need, and the only one that really works. He didn't know that there's nothing in the Bible that advocates praying to dead people in heaven. He didn't know that that's not where refuge and comfort and rescue is to be found. He, he didn't know that dead saints, I mean, not, not the, in the New Testament sense of believers, but of uh, peop, declared saints by the Roman Catholic Church, you know, authenticated saints, he didn't know that they really don't have areas of specialty that makes them the go-to dead people for particular people and particular problems. Like, I got this problem. What saint do I go to? Which, which one fits? He, he didn't know that God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And he did not know that God had provided a way for him to be at peace with God and know that he had peace with God through faith in, in Christ. And there was a lot he didn't know because he didn't know the Bible. And he, and he really, he can't be blamed for this situation. He can't, at this point in his life, he can't be blamed because the Bible at that time was the reserved and protected domain of professionals and all of those professionals were, were all members of the guild of professionals that was the Roman Catholic Church hierarchy, staff. In other words, not only was the Bible the reserved and sole domain of the professionals, all the professionals had to belong to the union. And it was a powerful and controlling union. That's a, a, a way you can think about it. The Bible was in Latin the language of Rome, and letting people read it for themselves in their own languages was regarded as dangerous and foolhardy. You can't let the... Un Here's how they'd reason. You can't let the unlearned, the uneducated, the uncredentialed, you can't let them read and study the Bible for themselves. They'll come up with all kinds of crazy ideas. They'll come up with all kinds of heresies, heretical things. You know, later on, when Luther had seen the light and he's applying the Bible to all kinds of situations in public life, in church life, in private life, 
his own and others. One of his critics complained. This was a complaint against him later on. He said, why? There, here's the complaint. He even puts his opinions forward in the German language. He's German. But within earshot of everyone, even the stupid people. And it, and it sounded and felt, I'm sure it felt at the time, like it's a reverence for the Scriptures. You know, how can... He's thrown pearls before swine. How can he let such a holy thing come into the hands of these, these stupid people who knows, who knows what they're going to do with it? And it sounds like reverence for the Scriptures is keeping it holy, unsullied. But it's also a lack... And if there's any part of that, it's also a lack of trust in the Scriptures to do what the Scriptures say it will do, they will do, if it's read, if it's believed, if it's obeyed. Like this one. All Scripture is inspired or breathed out by God. Another version is leaking in here. <laughs> All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. So in, in Luther's context, and the, you know, the context of the criticisms he would get, the word shouldn't be protected from stupid people. The word should, is given to all people to protect all people from stupidity. <laughs> and, and I'm not talking about, the kind of stupidity I'm talking about is, is spiritual and moral stupidity. I, you know, people can be experts and highly knowledgeable and very smart about a whole lot of things apart from Scripture. But in the spiritual realm and the things that count for eternity, the matter of how sinners like us can approach a holy God, God's Word shows the way. It makes, it makes the simple wise. It makes the stupid not be stupid. We, we could kind of turn it around. He even puts forward his opinions. He, you know, he teaches the scripture in the German language, even in front of the stupid people. We could say, turn it around and say, making the Bible the sole domain of an elite cabal of approved professionals over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years is what led to such great spiritual stupidity to begin with. Like thinking God is out to get me because I'm a sinner. He's out to get me. Those lightning bolts are for me. Like thinking that Jesus' grandma with a made-up name is the only one who can protect me from God. Because she specializes in helping equestrians and coal miners. What else will the Word do? If read, if believed, if obeyed. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Did, have you ever had that experience? You ever had the experience of, of the Word of God cutting right down to the core of your motivations? 
confronting you with the truth about yourself that you've been a, avoiding or denying for a long time, making things very clear to you, when up to that time you had been, you know, stupid about something. <laughs> That's what it does, doesn't it? The word cuts to the heart of, to your heart <laughs> of the matter. Here's another. But he, this is Jesus, answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So God's word, you know this, is spiritual food to you. A spiritual nourishment. So there was a lot of, it just it stands to reason that there really was a lot of spiritual stupidity in the pre-Reformation world because there was spiritual starvation <laughs> in the pre-Reformation world. And the, whole, and the word was kept away from people. So the, allegedly to protect it. To protect it from us. But anyway, Luther had cut his deal with St. Anne, and the deal was a deal. Within two weeks, he had left the university and became an Augustinian monk. His father was enraged. His, his retirement plans were dashed. Right about the time they're about, he's about to come through, it's over. And Luther, this young Luther, he consoled himself. He, he softened his, his uh, sense of betrayal to his father by reminding himself that his own daily regimen in the monastery was more burdensome than his father's in the coal mine. You think you, think you got it rough. What about me? What was Luther doing? Well, he's out of bed by one or two in the morning as a monk. Alarm clock goes off at one or two. Forty-five minutes of prayer, seven times daily. Forty-five minutes, seven times daily. Chanting, other religious exercises. And Luther, because of his sense of guilt and everything, he did more than what was required. That was everybody doing that stuff, everybody in the monastery. He added things. Fasting for days on end, a personal fast, personal prayer vigils. He prayed to 21 patron saints, not just Catherine, not just Anne. Uh, paid, prayed to 21 patron saints, three, three each day, seven, three each day for a total of 21, up to six hours daily in confession. His, his board confess, confessor, you know, the guy on the other side of the booth. He once said to him, next time, Martin, come in with something to confess. Like, this is boring. <laughs> you bring some real sins in here, why don't you? He slept without blankets to increase his spiritual well-being. More stupidity. <laughs> He, he later wrote about this time in his life. He said, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I would have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. Now, what do you think? 
Do you imagine that all this gave him a sense of peace with God finally? No way. <laughs> no way. The purpose of all of his striving was to compensate for his own sins, but he could never feel like he evened it up. And, and the Bible says you can't do it. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. In other words, you can't offset, offset sins you've committed over there by good deeds over here. You can't erase yesterday's sins with today's good deed. That's not how it works. And so for all his religious exercises, the effort, he found no peace with God. And as a priest, Luther would take his place before the altar. And that picture is not, is not Luther, but it's just a priest at the beginning of the Mass. And he'd, he'd come to the introductory remarks and he'd say, he'd say, we offer unto thee, he'd be talking to people, we offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. Although he'd be doing it in Latin, they couldn't understand him. <laughs> and Luther wrote afterwards, he said, At these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, With what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? And who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that, I am, for I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. What, what happens sometimes when a child feels like they can never earn a parent's approval? Uh, no matter what they do, no matter what they accomplish, it's never good enough for dad or it's never good enough for mom. Sometimes they begin to hate the one whose approval or love they feel like they can never get a hold of. And they go over an edge and they say, forget about it. And they, they hate that person. And they're still trying. They can't keep from trying. They still fall short. And what a frustrating place to be. And they, you know, they're mixed emotions. They want the approval. They want the reward. But they never can get it. And they're mad about it. And, and that's where Luther got in his relationship, his feelings toward God. He, he, he wrote, I was more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. And he said, love God? I hated him. Word of God is about to break in on Luther's life and assume its rightful place. He obtained a teaching position at the University of Wittenberg. That's, the, that's Wittenberg there. The building to the far right is the university. His own uh, lecture preparation became his Damascus Road. <laughs> he had to teach the Bible. From 1513 to 1515, 28 to 30 years old, he lectured on, uh, on the Psalms came across Psalm 22 where it says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Quoting words that Jesus quoted from the cross. And, and he, was, he was troubled by it because those were the same feelings he had toward God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he knew why he should feel that, but why should Christ feel that way? Why would the sinless Christ have this feeling of rejection by God, and he puzzled about that for a long time. 
And he didn't know why. 15, 15, uh, uh, 15, 15 to 15, 16, he lectured on Romans. He wrote, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in the punishing the unrighteous. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the righteous shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love, and that passage of Paul became to me a gate into heaven. And so it's, that's it. And for, for Luther now, and for you and for me, if we believe it, he says the wrath of God and the love of God is fused in the cross. It's no longer, the wrath of God's no longer on Luther or you or me. It's on Christ. He exhausts the wrath of God against our sins. And, and, and the love of God for Luther is always a carrot on a stick. He never could get to it. He's always reaching, never can get it. It's always out of his reach. It's not that way anymore. It's freely offered us in the person, the work, the finished work of Jesus. And here, here it is in Luther's own words. That's a representation of him like showing Christ to the people he's preaching. <laughs> if you have true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God, for faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. That it is to behold God in faith, that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart, in which there's no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his faith. Boy, that's it. He comes to faith. <laughs> but being at peace with God puts him at odds with others, and you'll find that to be the case as well. The organizing principles of the world, good and evil. God and the devil. God in a world at war with God. And coming to God through faith in Christ transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And the kingdom of darkness is not like people going over to the other side. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. In Luther's case, who are the enemies, who are the persecutors? The superiors in his church. 
An itinerant preacher named John Tetzel was commissioned to preach in Luther's areas selling indulgences. An indulgence is a transfer of credit. The way the Catholic Church had it figured then and now, sin, all sin has a penalty, here or in purgatory, which is just like hell, except you get out in a century or two or five or ten. The virtues of the saints, now this is the Catholic saints, it's not ordinary Christians like in the New Testament, but the, the great Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Peter, uh, you know, Anne, the mother of Mary, all of those people had built up a treasury of merit. In other words, they had more good deeds and virtue than they needed to get into heaven. And there's a whole lot left over, and it's just laying there. Nobody's using it. Nobody needed it. And the church, there's this great treasury of merit, all these good deeds and everything. And the church in Rome had the power of jurisdiction to dispense from this treasury of merit as it saw fit. For example, in consideration of a little money. You could purchase an indulgence for yourself or you could purchase an indulgence for a deceased relative or friend and already in purgatory and shorten their time and they could be lifted up to heaven. So here's Tetzel's, uh, here's Tetzel's pitch, I mean his sermon. Here's, here's part of his sermon. Listen now, God and St. Peter call you. Consider the salvation of your souls and those of your loved ones departed. You priest, you noble, you matron, you youth, you old man, enter now into your church, which is the church of St. Peter. Visit the most holy cross erected before you and ever imploring you. Have you considered that you're lashed in a furious tempest amid the temptations and dangers of the world and that you do not know whether you can reach heaven, reach the haven, not of your mortal body, but of your immortal soul? Consider that all who are contrite and have confessed and made contribution. I don't know if he paused there or not. <laughs> will receive complete remission of all your sins. Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends. Beseeching you and saying pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us. For a pittance. Do you not wish to? Open your ears. Hear the father saying to his son, the mother to her daughter, we bore you, nourished you, brought you up, left you our fortunes, and you are so cruel and hard that you're not willing for so little to set us free. Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? Remember that you were able to release them. And here's his, here's his uh, clothesline. For as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Luther's still a Catholic priest. He's scandalized. Hear his words about Tetzel. He says, He had grace and power from the Pope to offer forgiveness even if someone had slept with the Holy Virgin Mary. He was... That's... that's He's kind of a coarse guy. He, he got a lot more coarse than that. The mother of God, the mother of God, as long as a contribution would be put in the coffer. For, for furthermore, if anyone put money in the coffer for a soul in purgatory, that soul would leave purgatory for heaven, and the moment one could hear the penny hit the bottom. That's just what he said. 
Also, it is purported that the grace of the indulgences is the grace by which man is reconciled with God. Furthermore, it's not necessary to show remorse or sorrow or do penance for sins when purchasing indulgences or a letter of indulgence. He even sold indulgences for future sins. Such abominable things he did abundantly. He was merely interested in money. <laughs> Shocking, isn't it? <laughs> Shocking. And so, on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago from this coming Tuesday, he nails the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg. He wrote them in Latin, said make them suitable for academic debate, but someone translated them into German, and they were published all over Germany. I suspect Luther. <laughs> Got back to the Pope, Pope Leo X, at first, he just blew him off. He said, Luther's a drunken German. He will feel different when he is sober. But Luther's complaints were gaining credence among the people, and a response was called for, and the church sent forward its Goliath. John Eck, university professor, famous at the time, known for his great memory, command of language, theological acumen, debating skills. After grilling Luther on purgatory, indulgences, papal forgiveness, he kept pressing Luther. He said, are you the only one who knows anything? Except for you, is the whole church in error? And Luther says, I answer that God once spoke through the mouth of a donkey. I'll tell you straight out what I think. I'm a Christian theologian. I am bound not only to assert, but to defend the truth with my blood and death. I want to believe freely and to be a slave to the authority of no one, whether council, university, or pope. I confidently confess what appears to me to be true, whether it's been asserted by a Catholic or a heretic, whether it's been approved or reproved by a council. So what's he saying? He's saying that the authority for Christian faith and practice, belief, behavior... Is the Bible not what the academics say, not what the popes have said or have, say or may say tomorrow? It's the word alone. And he's also asserting the duty of, as a, his duty as a Christian, especially one who teaches, to defend the scriptures up to the point of shedding blood or even dying. And they expected him to, they expected him to fold in the face of this pressure. But instead he doubled down. So it ratcheted up to a new level of seriousness. And Luther was the subject of an open letter from the Pope himself. They called it a papal bull. Don't snicker. Now, if you snicker, you expose yourself as one of the unlearned and vulgar people, you know. So the term bull came from the lead seal that, you know, they put a lead seal on the document. And that was called a bulla in latin it really it's why you have in your stuffed in your bible church bulletins bulletins so anyway there's this let open letter about luther from the pope here's how it read leo bishop servant of the servants of god to eternal memory Starts with a prayer. Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. Be mindful of the daily slander against thee by the foolish. 
Incline thine ear to our supplication. Foxes have arisen which want to devastate thy vineyard. Where thou hast worked the winepress, a roaring sow of the woods has undertaken to destroy this vineyard. A wild beast wants to devour it. That's Martin. Here's the verdict. We prohibit this Martin from now on and henceforth to contrive any preaching or the office of preaching. And even though the love of righteousness and virtue did not take him away from sin and the hope of forgiveness did not lead him to penance, perhaps the terror of the pain of punishment may move him. Thus we beseech and remind this Martin, his supporters and accomplices of his holy orders and the described punishment. We ask him earnestly that he and his supporters, adherents and accomplices desist within 60 days from preaching both expounding their views and denouncing others from publishing books and pamphlets concerning some or all of their errors. Furthermore, all writings which contain some or all of his errors are to be burned. Furthermore, this Martin is to recant perpetually such errors and views. He's to inform us of such recantation through an open document sealed by two prelates, which we should receive within another 60 days, or he should personally, with safe conduct, inform him of his recantation by coming to Rome. Safe conduct means we promise not to kill him. We would prefer this latter way in order that no doubt remain of his sincere obedience. So he's ordered to recant. Did he recant? You know he did. You know he did. <laughs> Here's how he did. For example, there's a couple examples. Number 18 of the 95 Theses said that indulgences are the pious defrauding of the faithful. Luther said about that one, he said, I was wrong. I admit it when I said that indulgences are the most pious defrauding of the faithful. I recant, and I say indulgences are the most impious frauds and impostors of the most rascally pontiffs by which they deceive the souls and destroy the goods of the faithful. Here's another one. Number 29 said, certain articles of John Huss condemned at the Council of Constance are most Christian, true, and evangelical. Evangelical in that context means in keeping with the gospel. Luther recanted. He says, I recant. I now say, not some, but all of the articles of John Huss were condemned by Antichrist and his apostles in the synagogue of Satan. And to your face, most holy vicar of God, I say freely that all the condemned articles of John Huss are evangelical and Christian, and yours are downright impious and diabolical. At the end of the 60-day grace period, Luther issued a call to a bonfire. He had the fire. He was ordered to burn his works, right? He burned various past papal decretals, works of Catholic theology, the works of John Eck, other opponents, and the letter he got from Rome. He was summoned to a final tribunal, a formal deliberative assembly known to history as the Diet of Worms. When you read it, it looks like Diet of Worms. You think, what? Well, it's not a Diet of Worms. It's not about eating worms at all. It's a Diet in this context means a formal assembly, and, and vor- it looks like worms. It's worms. It's just the place where it was. It's, in Worms, Germany. It was billed as a heresy trial, but it was uh, 
only a final opportunity to recant. He was guaranteed safe conduct again. But back in 1415, slide 41, John Huss was guaranteed safe conduct to something like this to discuss his doctrine of Scripture alone, and he was burned at the stake. So why, did they welch on the deal? Well, not really. They reasoned because guarantees made to heretics don't count. And the tribunal determined he was a ter- heretic, so, you know, too bad. The Englishman John Wycliffe, before that, sola scriptura of Bible alone, he was the one who translated the Bible into English. He had the blessing of dying peacefully in his bed in 1384, and he deprived the religious authorities of the pleasure of burning him at the stake. So they had to content themselves with exhuming and burning his bones 41 years later. So you can understand why Luther expected to become a martyr at this meeting. He, he said, I've had my Palm Sunday. What, what's he mean by that, I've had my Palm Sunday? I mean, the cross comes next. The night before the trial, he prayed, O Almighty and everlasting God, how weak is the flesh, how powerful Satan. My last hour has come, my condemnation has been pronounced. O God, help me against the wisdom of the world. My desire is to see my days flow on peaceful and happy, but the cause is yours. And it's a righteous and eternal cause, O Lord. Help me, faithful and unchangeable God. O God, do not, do you not hear me? You've chosen me for this work. I know it. Act then, O God. Stand at my side for the sake of your beloved Son, Jesus, who's my defense, my shield, my strong tower. I'm ready to lay down my life for thy truth, patient as a lamb. And though this world, you can hear some mighty fortress in here, And though this world may be filled with devils, though my body, which is still the work of thy hand, should be slain, be stretched out on the pavement, be cut in pieces, reduced to ashes, my soul is yours. I have the assurance of your word. My soul belongs to you, and it shall abide forever with you. Amen. Oh, God, help me. Amen. That's the night before. In the morning, X, go, X, again, it's John Eck. He says, Martin, you have not sufficiently distinguished your works. The earlier were bad and the latter worse. Your plea to be heard, listen to this, your plea to be heard from the Scripture is the one always made by heretics. You do nothing but renew the errors of Wycliffe and Huss. How will the Jews, how will the Turks exult to hear Christians discussing whether they've been wrong all these years? Martin, how can you assume that you're the only one to understand the sense of Scripture? Would you put your judgment above that of so many famous men and claim that you know more than they all? You've no right to call into question the most holy orthodox faith instituted by Christ, the perfect lawgiver, proclaimed through the world by the apostles, sealed by the red blood of the martyrs, confirmed by the sacred councils, defined by the church in which all our fathers believed until death and gave us as an inheritance and which now we are forbidden by the Pope and the emperor to discuss, lest there be no end of debate. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors they contain? 
and he says, Since then, your majesty and your lordship desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns, without teeth, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they've contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. And then echoing the prayers of the night before, he says, God help me. Amen. And that's where we stand as well. If we're to be right, we're to be safe. Right with him, safe from his wrath. It's scripture alone that tells us how it all works, how we can know that we're right with God, how we know that we can live in a way that pleases him, how to live in a fallen world to citizens of his kingdom. Here it is. When we sang it, let good, and this, these are Luther's words, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. He, just, just to finish, just to say what happened, he, es- he escaped that meeting. Uh, the political situation had changed, and they would have burned him, but there were a lot of supporters around. It was in Germany. They should have got him to Rome. <laughs> and he lived, and he had contributed much, much to, the, to the body of Christ. He's my congregational singing. Um, this, the word is a central thing that happens in a worship service. Things like that. And it goes back to the faith and courage of Martin Luther, many others. So here it is. The word. The word. The word. Uh, May our generation prove as faithful and as courageous. To our own benefit, to God's glory, to the benefit of those who come after us, should the Lord tarry. Father, that's our prayer. That's our prayer. Very simple. May we be as faithful, courageous, and may may we hew to the word that can guide us in the right way and offer truth to a world awash in error. And we, we pray that such would be the case in the name of Jesus. Amen.